Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello? Hello? <clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. Network Asia. Welcome to She Talks Peace. A podcast that highlights the role of women peace builders around the world in bringing lasting peace and security to their communities. Eavesdrop into their conversations and get to know their stories. From the Philippines to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Palestine, from Myanmar to the United States. Their dreams and their hopes for a world without violence and a world where every woman and girl can be whoever she wants to be. Hosted by Amina Rasul Bernardo, President of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, and Dina Zaman, a Malaysian journalist and co-founder of Iman Research. This is She Talks Peace. Salam, dear friends from around the world. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. This is Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, Welcoming you to another fun and enlightening episode of She Talks Peace. You know, dear friends, I was just in Bangkok for the first face-to-face meeting of our women's group. It's called the ASEAN Women for Peace Registry. So this was our first face-to-face since the pandemic. So can you just imagine the conversations that we had After not being together for almost three years, our conversations had been through Zoom, like like most of you, I suppose. But unfortunately, many couldn't join us and had to participate via Zoom. But all in all, it was a very fruitful meeting and personally enriching as we were able to have side conversations over coffee or lunch, deepening our knowledge of what's happening in the ASEAN countries, and there are 10 countries, and how we of the ASEAN Women for Peace Registry are doing. And of course, enriching our taste buds with the fantastic Thai cuisine and the fresh fruits. Mmm, The only thing that we missed really was eating durian. Most of you don't know what durian is. Oh, come to Bangkok, Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, and taste it for the first time. But let me just uh, uh, warn you, the, the smell is so powerful that the most who are unfamiliar with durian would say, Yuck, the smell is so awful. But let me tell you, those of us who... Love Durian, like my guest today, will tell you that without the scent, Durian would not be as delicious. When we were in Bangkok, we decided to have dinner outside the hotel. So we went to this beautiful place called Asiatic. It's a uh, place where tourists and locals hang out. It's by the beach. I mean, I'm sorry, it's by the river. 
And uh, there's so many, used to be anyway, so many little stalls with Thai stuff and Thai food. They had, there were a lot of little places where you could get foot massages. And they had what they call the fish spa, where they have these tiny fishes in a tank. You put your feet in the tank and the fish would uh, eat up all of the, the dead cells and you end up with soft baby skin. Never tried it, but, you know, I thought, mm, not for me. But let me tell you about the dinner. It was so fantastic. Uh, my guest was with the, was unfortunately, no, uh, was, was I yes or with us? I'm not so sure. But we had morning glory. It's a favorite uh, vegetable in uh, Southeast Asia. In the Philippines, we call it tangkong. And uh, it was sautéed and it was so crispy and so delicious. We had very crispy fried fish. We had soft shell crabs with black bean sauce. And let me tell you, for the past three years, I've been eating like half a cup of rice with my meal, even less. But that night, I swear, I think I had at least two cups of rice. Well, Thai jasmine rice is also quite delicious. So I can be forgiven for gobbling up all those calories. But do come to Bangkok and do try Thai cuisine. But um, now let's go back to enriching the brain, shall we? In our conversations during our face-to-face -face, uh, meeting with the uh, members of the ASEAN Women for Peace Registry, we focused on the role that we women play in ensuring peace and security, and not just in our own countries, but in ASEAN as well. I mean, that's the, the Association for Southeast Asian Nations. And as I've said before in previous episodes, the ASEAN leaders have decided that there should be a regional plan of action for women, peace, and security, because they have finally accepted that women do have a very strong role to play. Now, let me just share with you a study of by the UN years and years ago, which said that men who predominantly occupy roles in both armed groups and public decision-making have long been considered the only relevant actors in conflict and its resolution. However, women have always been involved in conflict in different roles, be it as peacemakers, combatants, dependents, politicians or activists, and are greatly, often disproportionately, affected by conflict. The UN further said that women have a fundamental human right to participate in decision-making processes that affect them. But women's inclusion in peace processes is also a strategic imperative, as adding a broader range of perspectives can lead to more sustainable peace. So we in the ASEAN Women for Peace Registry looked at how we as a group could actually push the agenda of getting more women participating in decision-making, in peace processes, in peace building, 
And our guest today agrees with that 100%, maybe even 1,000%. My guest is Dr. Ayesa Uy Abubakar. I've known her since she was very young, but I'm not going to tell you how long. Ayesa is a research fellow at the Borneo Institute for Indigenous Studies, as well as a senior lecturer for International Relations Program with the Faculty of Social Science and Humanities at University Malaysia Sabah. She teaches human rights, international humanitarian law, and peace and development, among many others. I wonder if Ayesa teaches cooking. Hmm. In 2019, she published a book on peace building and sustainable human development, The Pursuit of the Bangsamoro Right to Self-Determination. Well, you can ask her why Bangsamoro later. And she co-authored a chapter on Mindanao in a book called Comparing Peace Process. She has received the Japan International Cooperation Agency, or JICA, Presidential Award for her work on peace building in Southeast Asia in 2014. She is among the three architects of a peace building uh, program, Track 1.5, which means it's not formal peace process, and it's called the Consolidation for Peace. And this is for Southern Thailand. Aceh, and Mindanao. The COP is a program by the Research and Education for Peace, University Science, Malaysia. And uh, the Southeast Asian Conflict Studies Network and Japan International Cooperation Agency. So Ayesa is also a member of the ASEAN Women for Peace, uh, Women Peace Registry. Maybe I didn't say what the ASEAN Women for Peace Registry is. We call it OPER, a pool of practitioners in conflict resolution and peace building, which was organized by the ASEAN and is lodged under the ASEAN Institute for Peace and Reconciliation. So let's uh, welcome Ayesa to the show. Hi, Ayesa. Salam. Assalamualaikum salam Amina and uh, thank you for inviting me this time for your podcast. I'm also excited to join you because I've been listening to some of the podcasts, especially the early ones, you know, and the conversations, the women conversations are really very interesting. Well, this is going to be even more interesting, Ayesa, because there are, we have personal ties that our listeners don't know about. So first, Ayesa, tell me, what is the COP? What is this Consolidation for Peace program that you have been involved in? Why is it so valuable that you received an award from JICA? Okay, uh, I think this is the first time that I will be talking more publicly about the COP. As you mentioned, this is really a Track 1.5 type of formal peace process. And uh, when we started this really as an experiment, you know, for quite some time, uh, we've been part of this 
network called the Southeast Asian Conflict Studies Network in Southeast Asia. So this is a network mainly uh, by academics and also uh, by NGO workers who have been uh, starting, you know, to do peace and conflict studies and, and more practice in the field of peace building. You know, and this happened as early as uh, 1999. You know, but I became part of CCSN in 2003. Okay, so as a result of you know the emergence of peace and conflict studies and practice in the region, uh, then we were given the opportunity to finally you know, do an experiment of all our our ideas and writings. You know, putting it into practice, how do we actually build a peace-building platform? Okay, Because at the time, we know already uh, a lot of the peace-building has been happening at the grassroots level. Okay? And to some extent, peace-building has also been happening as a top-down approach, mainly by UN agencies you know, coming over to conflict-affected areas and doing their peace-building activities. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this was really an opportunity for us, you know, to put together, you know, the top down and the bottom up approach and build this peace building platform. A more ASEAN approach. Exactly. And precisely because we're coming from the Southeast Asian Conflict Studies Network with, you know, the philosophy that if there are people who would be in the best position to resolve issues of conflict and uh, do conflict prevention, it will be amongst us. It will be our Southeast Asian brothers and sisters. Of course, right. we have to admit that we learn also from others, you know, uh, a lot of places in the world, you know, about what they're teaching about peace processes, peace building. But we also know that we have uh, so much uh, rich experience, you know, in Southeast Asia. So this is where we are proudly doing, you know, our own flavor of peace building. So COP is really a Southeast Asian type of peace building, that one we can say, especially that you have involvement not only with the Philippine, uh, Filipino um, stakeholders in the peace process, we also have people from Thailand with the Southern Thailand, the ongoing dialogue process. And at that time, you know, Aceh and the peace process in Aceh was just new. Well, they've already signed the peace agreement, but they were still doing a lot of the, the post-conflict development and peace building. So, and of course, Malaysia as the interlocutor, interlocutor. So we were in a way the mediator, you know, for this peace building paradigm together with our partners from JICA, from the Japanese. So what makes this this platform very ASEAN? When JICA came to us in 2007, you know, they were asking, you know, at the time they already had a piece, a huge, uh, a pretty big peace building department. But then uh, they have yet really to to do the actual peace building. How do they enter into this peace building work in Southeast Asia? And so uh, when we partnered with them, you know, we gave them the ideas that we, we are already doing our own peace building work, you know, in some of these conflict uh, areas, you know, the, the three main ones, Aceh, Southern Thailand and Mindanao. But if they are interested to work with us, then we want to put it in a higher level, you know, including 
all the main actors. Okay, so in the COP uh, in 2007, we invited participants in the peace process in the government of the Philippines and the MILF, More Islamic Liberation Front, negotiating teams. Okay, so we invited them uh, to be part of the COP together with some civil society leaders. Okay, and then the same thing with Ache. But as for Southern Thailand, uh, at the time, it was, you know, the dialogue process was just very new. So we really couldn't uh, invite a full team. So instead, we invited some civil society leaders from Southern Thailand. So the idea, Amina, is really to give an opportunity for all these main actors of any formal peace process or dialogue process and let them also be joined by Uh, the civil society leaders, because normally in any formal peace process, the civil society groups are, you know, dealt with separately. You know, yeah. if so at as, all. Yeah. So as with the assumption that they, we want to protect the formal peace process, which is also valid. You know, because as they say, too many cooks can spoil the broth. That's right. That's um, right. We understand that, but at the same time. Especially in the case of the Philippine peace process with the GPHMILF, you know, it cannot be helped that we have a very active peace building civil society community. So we really cannot just, you know, um, not have an event or uh, a platform where there will be that interaction between the main parties and also the civil society. So we bring together all these actors, peace building stakeholders, what we call them, to Penang. At the time, I was still with the University of Science Malaysia and uh, together with Professor Kamarul Zaman, he is really the brain behind the COP and he was then the founding person of the Southeast Asian Complex Studies Network. So we bring them over once a year. It's like a retreat. Mm. For most people who are into peace processes and peace building. So it's a retreat, you know, we, we get to review, refresh them about uh, peace and conflict studies and learnings of best practices from other parts of the world or even within the region. And then give them also that space, you know, the most important space for them to talk to each other, to brainstorm you know, together on what else can be done to support the peace process. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that the platform is here in ASEAN because you're absolutely right, Ayesa. It's... It's not just irritating, but actually counterproductive to have the so-called experts flying in from the United States, from Europe, from, you know, these uh, rich countries with their concept of what peace is and how do you make peace. They come in and the locals say, nah, 
not for us because your premises are all wrong. Your, your you know, uh, uh, construct does not apply in our in our community. So now we have a platform that really focuses more on what is the ASEAN way. Is there an ASEAN way? Oh, by the way, Ayesa, does the platform, this ASEAN way, have a place for women? Uh, answer your last question, but I want to go back also to another story about you know, the idea of people from the outside coming into Southeast Asia. Okay, quickly about women. Well, I'm very lucky that, as you already mentioned, the COP was really a brainchild of three personalities, mainly Professor Kamarul Zaman, then there is myself, and there is also Sachiko Ishikawa from Jaika. So two Perfect. women and one, one So man. you outnumbered Zam. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yes. But then we have to also tell you that I think uh, Prof Zam is already, you know, a pro pro women in that aspect when you talk about support. Honorary women. woman. Okay. Honorary opar. <laughs> yeah. Because Precisely, it was his idea that we should be, you know, doing more, more work, in fact, during that COP. And we've been doing COP from 2007 up to 2014. And throughout the years, uh, Sachiko and I have actually been, you know, very much, you know, on, on the front seat, you know, uh, working uh, equally with uh, Prof. Kamaruzaman. So going back to the other story, I, I want to give that trivia because the first COP, in fact, in 2007, we did invite two uh, respected, uh, well-renowned professors all the way from Bradford University in UK. <laughs> because Prof. Kamarul Zaman is a graduate. He's very proud as a graduate of Bradford uh, Peace Studies, Peace and Conflict Studies. So naturally, he invited over his two professors, Tom Woodhouse, Professor Tom Woodhouse, and all, uh, Professor Oliver Ramsbottom, Sir Oliver Ramsbottom. So um, the two of them came over gave us lectures okay but throughout the three days that we were together they listened more and in fact they learned they learned more so yes they gave their part you know they gave their knowledge contribution but it was really us you know doing all the brainstorming you know so we we cannot deny it that we also have to learn from others you know what has been done and all about the theory about cosmopolitan peace building, about international politics of peace processes and peace building. That is something that we have to accept, the reality that we have to work on. Okay, But at the same time, uh, if we understand this, then we also know now how to carry forward our own issues as local peace, bu peace builders in Southeast Asia. So yeah, yeah, we should be working in fact with everybody else so long as we know our identity, you know, our core, who we are, and what we are supposed to achieve for our own sake here in Southeast Asia. So we listen to their theory and they listen to our experience and come up with a more solid platform. You know, yes, uh, I cannot help but recall a speech by the late Lee Kuan Yew. He was uh, talking about our Philippine constitution, among other things. And uh, he was saying that one of our problems really is that we got the American constitution and then just applied it to the Philippines. And he said that, you know, the, the, the constitution, this very important document, is really like a suit 
you know, you get an American suit, but it's meant for American sizes and American build. We are Asians. We don't have the American size. So you get the suit, you bring it to your tailors, they fix it. Maybe shorten the sleeves, maybe shorten the waist so that it fits your Filipino build. And that is the way you should also approach a, con a very important document like the Philippine Constitution. And I cannot help but feel that the way you've been talking about your experience, that is also the way that the uh, COP platform is uh, being shaped. And by the way, you mentioned Professor Sam. I think our listeners would be interested to know how you first got to meet Sam and how did it develop into the romance of the century? Yeah, I think I've, I met Sam for the first time sometime in 2000, uh, 2002. Yeah, in, in, in Thailand. Uh, I forgot the place. Just an hour away from, from Bangkok, there's a resort area. Uh, uh, well, I was invited to be a participant in a training program of the Southeast Asian Conflict Studies Network, which, in which he, he, you know, he founded, you know, he was the chair at that time. And at the time, I just finished my master's at AIM in development management. And then, uh, I was, you know, slowly working to, to develop the young professionals, the young Muslim professionals YMP network. So as a YMPN, then, you know, uh, we were invited by CCSN to attend this conflict resolution uh, seminar workshop in Thailand. So at the time I was, when I finished AIM, uh, I did my master's in development management. Then we, together with my friends, Jehan Mutin and uh, Samira Gutok, then we started, you know, to develop the Young Moral Professionals Network, YMPN in Manila. So uh, as YMPN chair, then I was invited to the Southeast Asian Conflict Studies Network seminar workshop in Thailand. And that was where I met Zam. And then the romance started amidst conflict resolution and peace building. Long story, dear, long story. Long, long story. <laughs> but dear listeners, Ayesa and uh, Professor Sam have become this powerful husband and wife team of uh, peace builders. And they've actually done a lot of work supporting the peace process in the Bangsamoro with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. And I'm so happy that the peace, this peace building husband and wife team are now focusing on other areas in uh, Southeast Asia. Because here in Southeast Asia, we do have conflicts and potential conflicts that could arise. I mean, we have Myanmar still unresolved, Southern Thailand still uh, a problem. But Ayesa, how do you apply your peace building techniques with uh, conflict, uh, well, how do you do conflict resolution between a husband and wife team <laughs> who, are so, who are peace builders? Uh, I want to go back first to the COP, you know, what makes COP works, you know, because uh, and how is the dynamics, especially for a female 
uh, for a woman to be part of a COP and to be driving. You don't want to talk about some, huh? <laughs> Maybe later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Because I think for outsiders, you know, it's easy really to to organize meetings, to organize a platform like this, so long as you have the money. But that's not what COP is all about. And let me tell you, maybe it's not going to be a secret anymore. The reason why COP is so unique is that the two of us, as you mentioned, husband and wife team, Malaysian and a Filipino, we have been working actually, uh, and we have uh, relationships, you know, close relationships, of course, with our friends in Aceh, in Southern Thailand, and in the Philippines. So that is a plus, you know, something that you cannot just easily take with you and that kind of relationship it's not just about friend relationships but also understanding the situation and really monitoring you know the conflict and peace process situation over the years so cop did not come about by just getting people on board and you know you do your own thing you know it took already as i mentioned we've been part of uh, the southeast asian conflict studies network so it has taken already years of preparation for us to do a cop Okay, so that is one. And then second is because precisely we've been trying to practice this peace building philosophy and uh, also the theory of peace building. So when we, in fact, before we organize the agenda of every COP, we do consultations on the ground. Agenda is not set by us. We are merely mediators and facilitators. So we would go and meet our partners and we call our participants as partners. We do not treat our participants as somebody that we invite and they are and lecture to. participants in the No, that's not how COP works. You know? So in peace building, we treat everybody as co-equals, as people who are you know, contributors because everybody are already practitioners in the peace process and peace building. So we do consultations and then we agree. You know, we help shape the agenda and we agree on an agenda. So that is why people come to RCOP because they know what to expect and they want to be part of that agenda that they help also uh, shape, you know, for the COP meeting. And then going now to the actual COP, again, we are merely facilitators and mediators. We, of course, we we conduct the COP, you know, uh, using the, you know, with much, uh, we respect the privacy, making sure that what is discussed in the COP stays in the COP. And we give them the space, you know, they can discuss any issue that they want, you know, on the table. Okay, and allow them to also have that a leeway, you know, so that they can continue to process not only the intellectual uh, issues, but also their emotions. So we allow that. I mean, after all, people, we are all human beings. You know, people are human beings. It doesn't matter if you are, if you are in this position, if you are representing the government, if you are representing the non-state armed group, or you are this famous civil society leader. No, it doesn't matter. Everybody, you know, they talk in the COP as people, you know, as human beings, you know, from one person to the other. So that's what makes COP unique. And okay, then, okay. So, so very, very good, very good. Yes, huh? But when you and Professor Sam have a disagreement about where should the children go to school, what color should the curtains be, should we buy a television set? How do you, as a peace builder, 
how do you apply what you have learned from the COP to conflict resolution with Professor Sam? Well, he he would have his own. Uh, he would have his talents in convincing me. I would also have my own talents in convincing him in conditioning his mind. So both of us, are in a way, you know, do the same thing. You know, a lot of negotiation. And I think when we come, you know, to a conclusion, then that's the good part because when we agree, then there is no problem at all. And I think because we we are, you know, in a similar, um, we work together, and we, otherwise we will also not be married if we don't have similar values in life. So I don't think we we have a lot of uh, conflict issues to begin with. Yeah, but no, but, uh, for, but you did mention uh, in, in our previous conversation that uh, sometimes people forget that there are cultural differences that can shape our approaches. And it doesn't matter that we're all Malayu, you know, that we come from the Malay stock. I mean, if you're Filipino, you have a different sensibilities. If you're Indonesian, it's different. If you're Malaysian, it's also a little bit different. And this shapes your uh, perception of, of reality, right? And then I'm glad that you, you came up, you came up with uh, your, your negotiating tactic that uh, Sam negotiates, you negotiates. And I guess, yes, uh, the key in peace at home and peace in the community uh, have the same pillars, right? Listening, dialogue, right? Yeah. And compromise. So I gather it uh, worked because you and Sam are still happily married, right? <laughs> yes. Now, talking about the the cultural differences in applying peace building in in ASEAN. Let's now look at the role that women play in peace and security within the ASEAN context. How would your platform, your COP platform, how will it be useful, for instance, for us in the ASEAN Women for Peace Registry? Yeah, as I mentioned, Amina, a lot of it really has to do with personal uh, interaction and dynamics and values. You know how how knowledgeable we are about each other's culture. So the same way in our AWPR community, you know, right now we are experimenting in this small uh, community of AWPR. So we're just starting to get to know each other really. And think over the years, you know, um, the more comfortable we we are with each other, the more that we can do, give uh, put in more contributions to what we are set out to do. So it will take some time. We have to admit we're just feeling each other for now. But I think so far, like in our meeting in Bangkok, there is already a unanimous understanding that definitely we would like to achieve more uh, women's participation in anything that has to do with the peace situation in our region. Yeah, dear listeners, um, the ASEAN Women for Peace Registry or OPER, this was created by the leaders of ASEAN because they wanted a pool of uh, women experts, practitioners, and academics in the field of peace and security. So mediators, uh, those who are peace builders and peace advocates, and ASEAN requested each of the 10 member countries to 
identify an initial three from each uh, country to be part of, of OPER. But as our discussions with Ayesa clearly show, you don't have to have armed conflict in your country to have to have the need for these women who are working on peace and security because uh, the agenda for women peace and security applies not just to communities who are in conflict but to also prevent i mean there's so many triggers right yes if you've got like income disparities you've got uh, gender inequality these are possible triggers political issues these are possible triggers for a potential conflict as you've seen in the United States with the attack on their US capital last uh, January so so what do you think uh, Ayesa in our conversation it seemed like we're doing ASEAN are doing okay in uh, peacekeeping I mean you've got several countries you have women peacekeepers that they've sent abroad to help out but it seemed to me like uh, there was some unanimity in the and the, the issue that the participation of women in peace building and decision making is sort of kind of stagnant is, is am i right yes and what do you think we can do about that i think you know uh, with in respect to peace building the peace building communities throughout Southeast Asia. I think, you know, we, we have, uh, we are very rich with women's leadership in that regard. But maybe not for countries that, as you said, do not have an armed conflict. Peace building is something really new to them. Like Malaysia, for instance, and Singapore and Brunei, you know, they don't really talk about peace building, but they do talk about racial harmony. They talk about ethnic relations so that is a different you know language but in a way it you know it tends to delve into the same issues as peace building that you know it, it wants to deal with structural uh, relationships you know in a society so but then these countries also uh, for a fact are also um, taking part you know in supporting other peace processes in the region, like Malaysia is a facilitator in the ongoing peace process uh, in the Philippines with the MILF, uh, the same way that Malaysia is involved in the dialogue process in, in southern Thailand. So while they are, you know, already, you know, part of the peace processes, but then there is really more room for improvement on having more women you know take part in these peace processes as third party facilitators and mediators so that is one and then you mentioned and i guess it's the same way for indonesia and uh, in, even for singapore you know in the arena of asean you know when they are dealing with myanmar for example and so i think the more that asean you know the our asean ministry of foreign affairs you know include more women women ambassadors to take part and also help in finding ideas on how to help Myanmar in its ongoing situation, I think we will have a diversity of ideas and even in terms of practice of doing the dialogue process itself. And you also mentioned about peacekeeping. Some of our countries in Southeast Asia are very active in, in sending peacekeepers, uh, Thailand, Singapore, Indonesia, 
I think for Indonesia, uh, there was a certain point in time that they have sent some female peacekeepers, a couple of female peacekeepers in Mindanao, I think in sometime between 2012 to 2016. The same thing with the Malaysian uh, members of the IMP. I think there were like two female peacekeepers from uh, Malaysia that was also sent at one point in time during the International Monitoring Team mission in Mindanao. But then again, to me, you know, as now part of AWPR or OPAR, I think it's not enough that we send women peacekeepers, but we also need to find out the quality of the participation of this female peacekeeping mission. Are they, are they just doing traffic control or are they exactly. doing something more substantive? Exactly. Yes. exactly. Because uh, we have to admit, you know, we are not really traditionally looking at peacekeeping, you know, as part of our uh, gender empowerment in the region. It's only now that we are, you know, more sensitive about, you know, peacekeeping and how women should be participating. So there are more opportunities for us to improve then in terms of peacekeeping within the region. Especially now that uh, we have been practicing that peacekeeping does not only have to be UN initiated. Even among Southeast Asian neighbors, we can also send our own peacekeeping missions with the region. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The, um, in, in, um, in ASEAN, there are only two countries really that have a national action plan for women, peace and security. That's uh, the Philippines. And we're now actually doing the, what, what is called the fourth generation plan. So, and Indonesia, uh, also has a national action plan for women, peace and security. And yet when the, UN Security Council Resolution 1325 was approved, and that was more than 20 years ago. All of the countries in ASEAN, together with all the countries in the world, supported it. So tell me, Ayesa, why do you think it is that only two out of 10 countries have a national action plan for women, peace, and security? I think it's normal that, you know, some, some countries have picked it up quickly while others are just, you know, slowly, you know, picking it up. I, I know for a fact that, uh, Malaysia is also preparing its, uh, uh, national action plan slowly. I think it's under the Ministry of Women and Family Development. So, you know, they, they're starting to move on, on that, uh, direction as well. But again, it's taking some time because precisely as what we have been discussing in the OPAR, we really have yet to define and redefine what does the WPS agenda really mean to us as Southeast Asians. So that is something that we need to go into, you know, within AWPR, even uh, while 
we understand that the regional uh, action plan is also being prepared right now and then some countries are also doing their national action plan but again i'm sure you know we really have to do this quickly on reviewing what do we mean by wps in terms of indigenizing it you know to our own cultural uh, and political context as well yes absolutely right but do you agree for instance with what our colleagues in Singapore and uh, Malaysia and other countries say that uh, since there are no active armed conflicts in their countries, when they look at women, peace and security and the pillars like participation, uh, prevention of conflict, uh, promotion of uh, women, uh, etc., then within their laws and programs, They have sections already that the su- that support the pillars of um, a WPS, and therefore they don't really need a national action plan. Do you think it's a, a a pragmatic way of looking at implementing the Women, Peace, and Security agenda? I'm not sure about uh, Malaysia because, as I mentioned, there is now a preparation of a national action plan for Malaysia. So, and I haven't also read anything yet about what is the direction for the Malaysian action plan. You know, but since they are doing it, I'm, I'm sure they are also trying to to follow the WPS agenda. So, I don't know how Singapore would, you know, would really want to, um, you know, to continue practice in in that kind. Uh, view or framework, you no. Know? But as you mentioned, while it is true that we do not have an active armed conflict, but hey, as part of the WPS agenda, there is that term conflict prevention, and we can never be too sure that there is no armed conflict that's going to involve us. Not necessarily happening, you know, within, but it, about our involvement. So in that regard, of course, we want more. Women also to participate, you know, in the decision making process to make sure that, you know, in terms of national security and human security, that women's issues, it's not really a matter, just a matter of women representation, but more so it's really more of the women's issues being dealt with, you know, as part of security issues, both at the national security issue and the human security issue. Yeah. You know, sometimes leaders may be don't really appreciate the fact that when women lobby, when women leaders lobby for a greater role in participating in decision-making, they don't see that the more women are involved in decision-making or in a peace process, for instance, the higher the chance of that agreement or becoming more sustainable. And yet, There have been so many studies, including studies done by the UN, that show this to be true. The more women are at the peace uh, table, the more women that are involved in uh, peacemaking, the more sustainable, the more concrete are the agreements. And that's largely because when women are involved, they bring a different perspective. I mean, if it's all men, you could just imagine that the agreements will be all about control power sharing between rebels and government. But you bring in the women and the women are going to say, yes, but what about the children? What about the family? What about education? What about income generation 
for families. This women bring in, which makes agreements more sustainable. And if women, more women are going to be involved in any kind of decision making in politics, for instance, then I can be more or less sure that government programs are going to be more sustainable and will be more inclusive, right? Yes, I mean, you just have to take a, take a look at New Zealand, for instance. <laughs> with the number of women that they have in decision-making and with uh, the leader, a woman who seems to be really quite inclusive. So in Malaysia, do you think there's any possibility that there would be more women in politics? What do you think, Ayesa? Yeah, so far, uh, when it comes to women's participation in, uh, in politics in Malaysia, it has been improving a lot. So there are, in fact, more female candidates being uh, that are able to run now for elections. So I, I think while it is true that it has not reached yet that 30% quota mm-hmm. that they were trying to set it out as a target, but the direction is really going you know, forward, going towards that direction. And then interestingly, in Malaysia, when it comes to the security sector, mm-hmm. I've met you know, some uh, female leaders mm-hmm. who are you know, at the helm of uh, leadership in the in a different security sector organizations in Malaysia. So it's not that women are absent mm-hmm. in this security sector. But this is where my argument, my counter argument about a female representation comes into play. Because mm. yes, you mentioned that the more women should be participating in a lot of all these uh, decision making. But then at the same time, we have to be aware that it's not necessarily true that if you put a female leader there, that she's going to be conscious about the interest for, for the women population. You know, I mean, we have that examples like former President Gloria Arroyo, mm. who did also a peace process, but at the same time, he was, she was also leading, you know, the arm, escalating the armed mm. conflict on the other side. So and then there was also a former uh, president Megawati of Indonesia mm. also was doing the same thing you know crying you know be, during the, the 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 martial law in Aceh that she was not going to hurt uh make Achenese people suffer but at the same time it was during her time that mm. you know the the military rule was was conducted so Again, it's also good for us to take this opportunity in the AWPR to sensitize our own, our own women, women, our sisters, <laughs> our sisters mm. within our because you know, in fact, among women, well, it is true that we have our obstacles, you know, with with the men, with mm-hmm. the men, um, leadership within ourselves. We also have our own intra uh, relationship obstacles, and this is something that we need to reflect on. Yes. In fact, uh, there was a study by um, one of my colleagues here at University Malaysia Sabah. Her PhD was about leadership of women uh, in the um, academic associations. Mm -hmm. You see, uh, I mean, uh, in every public university or any university for that matter, we have all these academic associations. Mm -hmm. And then uh, she was studying, you know, especially in the big public universities, you know, how was women's leadership? You know, are they given the opportunity to be, you know, leading these academic uh, associations, you know? And she was surprised to find out actually that the opportunities are there, except the women themselves, for many other reasons, do not want to be in the front line. Yeah. So that tells you about something. I mean, 
of course, I'm sure you know you and I know already the usual reasons that it maybe it's because of their responsibilities in the home, in the home, and also the you know the their time for the career. You know how women juggle for all this work life balance. But at the same time, it also tells you that there are really you know um, obstacles. Some uh, obstacles, yeah, not yeah. just you know not just the practical obstacles, but maybe also the mindset about putting ourselves on the front line. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's admit it. And between you and I, I have to give it all to you that, you know, in several times you were very brave to put your name out there and to, you know, to run for an election. Uh-huh. Not many women, not many <laughs> and women <lose>. are <laughs> Exactly, Amina. I will not be brave. I will tell you, I will not be brave enough to do that. I think I know my place that, you know, I, I would want to be in a leadership position, but not in that way. So, so it, it's really an opportunity for us, you know, to reflect on ourselves and how we can push more women to be on the front line, not necessarily in politics, but also in many other ways. Yep. That's a um, good observations, really, Ayesa, especially the point where there are women and there are women. There are women who are pro-women and there are men who are pro-women, just the same as there are many women leaders who are not pro-women. And, and I'm, I'm really glad that uh, you pointed that out. And having to have this discussion with our sisters is, I agree, really key. Well, thank you so much, Ayesa, for a wonderful conversation. I hope you don't get in trouble with Sam. For, <laughs> for bringing his name into the discussion. But before we say goodbye to our uh, dear listeners, perhaps you have a message of encouragement for those who are listening to us, potential peace builders, all of them. I think when we talk about peace building, uh, you know, it, it's more complex, you know, if women want to make their mark in peace building. Because to me, peace building, it's inclusive with the whole peace process in itself. So we should not just be setting our mind that if women cannot be part of the negotiating table, then that's it. Women have no influence. No, we know for a fact that there are many behind the scenes that happen mm-hmm. where women are able to participate. I'm not saying that we should not be in a negotiating table. If we are capable and we have the opportunity, why not? That's why we need to prepare ourselves. You know, and to prepare our sisters to help them, those who really need the voice to be in the peace process, we should support them, in fact, you know, to be in that table. But at the same time, in peace building, there's actually a lot of room and opportunities for women. But it's all up to us to be very creative and to work with each other, not only among women, but also with their, with our male counterparts. I think I cannot also deny that I'm I'm lucky that I'm able to do the things I want to do, especially with the COP, because I have had support from my husband. Mm, you know, from, very important. You know, husband, very supportive, you know, to push me, you know, in doing the COP. And I have to tell you, Amina, that in the beginning, I was also not very confident that I can actually do it. Mm-hmm. But he just gave me the idea and the rest of it, I have to do it myself. Mm. So it's all up to my creativity. How do I build the COP? And then he will just come and then see if it's going to work or not. And then just let me run the whole COP. So that's how it works. So we should also 
be very open, you know, to working with both men and women right. to the, to achieve our own agenda for women's well-being and our participation in peace and security issues. You're absolutely right. Um to be sure that we can effectively implement the Women, Peace, and Security agenda, we do need the support and cooperation of the men who are with us. And dear listeners, I just remembered a popular song of the Catholic Church in the Philippines. Now, mind you, the Catholic Church is a male-dominated institution as are most uh, religions. But the song that came to my mind, I think really encapsulates this idea that security is not just armed, uh, you know, armed conflict or state security, but it's really human security, security of women, children, men, families. And that song, if I may share it with you, and I'm sure Ayesa knows this because every time we have like retreats uh, organized by Catholic uh, organizations, they always sing this song at the beginning. And it goes something like this. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. And with that, dear listeners, thank you for listening to our conversation. Thank you, Ayesa, for joining us. This is Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy saying goodbye. Have a great time wherever you are. Keep safe. Bye. She Talks Peace is brought to you in partnership with Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics, the easiest way to monetize your podcast. For more information, check out their website at podcastnetwork.asia and podmetrics.co. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.